Welcome to the latest episode of On the Case from EG, this time taking a look at the recent Supreme Court decision in Hillside Parks Limited versus Snowdonia National Park Authority, a case concerning the relationship between successive grants of planning permission for development on the same land. I'm joined by Stuart Andrews, partner and head of planning at Evershed Sutherland, to discuss this case. Welcome, Stuart. Hello there. Hi. First then, Stuart, please could you just talk us through uh, what are a slightly unusual set of facts uh, leading up to the dispute? Sure, I'm happy to do that. The site, um, Balkan Hill, is in Snowdonia National Park. It's some 29 acres of land uh, that secured planning permission, um, detailed planning permission, uh, for 401 dwellings in 1967, um, subject to an overall master plan scheme for the site Um, and the site uh, shortly thereafter um, but then flowing right the way through to the 1980s was the subject of successive um, planning applications for individual dwellings or small groups of dwellings um, which pretty much from the get-go were inconsistent with the master plan scheme from the 1967 um, detailed consent and um, the issues that flowed from that were whether any of the implementations of those successive consents um, then undermined and nullified the original 1967 consent. And that's pretty much frames the issue that mm-hmm. was then discussed in the High Court, Court of Appeal, and then more recently in the Supreme Court. Okay, so uh, against that background, so what was the, 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 the key decision of the, the National Park that the developer Hillside Parks Limited um, sought to challenge uh, in this case? Sure. Well, what happened was that in May um, 2017, the local authority wrote to the developer and uh, asserted in the correspondence that it was impossible to implement the 1967 permission now following the implementation of these successive inconsistent planning permissions. Mm -hmm. And um, the uh, developer, Obviously disputed that um, and then in resolution of the dispute um, uh, uh, entered into proceedings uh, in the High Court to seek a declaration from the court to say that the planning permission was um, still um, valid and still uh, could be carried out to completion. Um, that then went to uh, the High Court in 2019 um, and uh, that argument was rejected or concluded it wasn't uh, physically possible to implement the planning permission any longer. Uh, That bounced then on to the Court of Appeal in 2020 and the Court of Appeal again dismissed the case and confirmed that it was no longer possible to implement the 1967 permission. And then from there, though you would have thought by that point it was pretty obvious way um, this was going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they went then to the Supreme Court. I mean, obviously, you know, the underlying point is that 400 dwellings on a hill in Snowdonia is worth something. So you mm. could see there was value yeah. in the argument. Um, off they trotted to the Supreme Court to to argue again. Well, it's, it's it's not unheard of to uh, to lose uh, the first two rounds and ultimately triumph uh, at the Supreme Court. But uh, yeah, it's rare. I, I'm sure you would agree. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and, um... and so by the time that the, the case had, had uh, gone through the, the High Court and the Court of Appeal and the, the arguments had been 
distilled and crystallized what what were sort of the major grounds uh, being advanced by hillside at the supreme court uh, well there were three um somewhat nuanced and complicated in their nature um almost inevitably really given the nature of the case um but the first uh, argument was that the um the process of moving from one planning permission to another was analogous with abandonment mm-hmm. and that uh, there was a active decision and process that made you move from one consent to another and actively abandon the one that went before and it was argued that that wasn't the case here but that was where um, that issue would apply and then the second was that uh, inherent to the 1967 planning permission uh, because it was a multiple building scheme is that it could be um, constructed in subsets of buildings sub- subject to subsets of planning permissions mm-hmm. um, and then the third limb of the argument was that if it wasn't severable in substance the additional planning permissions were just simply variations to the 1967 permission so those are the three arguments that were run uh, in, in in the Supreme Court by uh, by the developer. And can you sum up for us how the, the Supreme Court uh, handled those arguments and ultimately uh, dismissed the appeal? Uh, well, again, um, responding to that is is is, is not without uh, complexity and nuance. But I mean, the short point is that they rejected all of the arguments um, and um, uh, I think the fairest answer to that question is that the courts um, stood away from the three arguments um, to a degree and and stood back and reviewed uh, the statutory code. And I think it's important to understand when you look at a decision like Hillside uh, that it was made um, uh, it's made in the context of Pilkington. Pilkington is uh, a um, a leading authority on the interrelationship of planning permissions um, that's almost 50 years old. Um, And in the intervening period since the Pilkington judgment, there's been a series of other judgments and decisions on the relationship of uh, an interplay between planning consents. And of course, then along the way, we've had um, the PowerGen decision and the process of uh, the House of Lords in that case, uh, establishing a very firm view that when you looked at the planning system that's been in operation at that time for, for the best part of 50 years, um, that you should understand it operates within the statutory code and your starting point and, your, and, and actually your end point in review and consideration of any planning permission uh, should be framed in what the statutory code can and can't let you do. So unsurprisingly here, the court, when they came to the issue, started with what you can and can't do within the statutory code. Well, you can obtain planning permission and you can vary a planning permission by Section 73 as relates to a condition and by 96A by reference to a non-material amendment. There isn't any statutory mechanism relating to the interplay between two planning consents. And from that statutory starting point, the court then turned its uh, mind to the concept of the Pilkington principle and confirmed that the Pilkington principle uh, was sound law, but in very specific terms. So 
looking at this scheme and looking um, more broadly at the concept of a detailed planning permission, their position was one of um, drop-in applications are acceptable uh, and would be consistent with um, the Pilkington principle which they endorsed on the basis that there's no um, material change to um, the substance of the scheme. So in circumstances for a detailed scheme, you might be unhappy with the disposition and form of an individual dwelling in a plot that could be um, replaced by another similar building with a different disposition, different form, um, provided it was consistent with the overall development. Uh, and, and we could just stop there really, because that's helpful in confirmation of that principle. But the difficulty is um, that that principle has been expanded upon over the course of the past 50 years from the concept of, if you go back to Pilkington in its origin, which was basically planning permission for a bungalow, the interplay of another planning permission for a bungalow within the same residential area, uh, the curtilage, and the argument, well, I can have the benefit of the two planning permissions. And the court said, well, no, it doesn't work that way because um, the original bungalow and its residential area was the unit of occupation. And you, you put another bungalow in it and you've, you've destroyed the integrity of that, which was granted in the first place. So that concept holds true on an individual plot basis. The difficulty and challenges with this judgment is what the courts then said in respect of um, multiple unit schemes, which of course is, you know, 401 dwellings on a hillside in Snowdonia is exactly what the court were dealing with there. Mm. And from there, um, their commentary uh, and judgment, their uh, assessment of the Lucas case and the confirmation that it was wrongly decided and what follows on there, particularly at paragraph 50 of the judgment, is really, really very important because what they say is that the analysis of a multi-unit development scheme needs to look at the integrity uh, and, and the integrated whole scheme. Um, and once you start as the court starts from that proposition, they then lead into an argument as to what the public understand a planning permission to be, how they read a planning permission, and their entitlement to be able to go to the public record, see um, the assessment of the merits and benefits of the scheme, the objections and how that balanced judgment was reached in formulation and consideration of a whole development opposition. Um, and if you then are intervening into that whole concept by doing a, a single or a series of drop-in applications that take away elements of that original whole proposition and the integrated and interrelated function of that whole scheme, then you're in some way damaging um, the the integrity of of, of of the first decision mm. uh, and the basis upon which uh, it was it was authorized on a on, on a planning balance basis and uh, what flows from that is uh, some fairly um, strict and burdensome issues relating to large-scale developments where you're not concerned with the individual adjustment and replacement of a single a single plot. Now you can see on a full scheme basis, if you've 
um, granted planning permission for uh, 100 units mm -hmm. um, and you're halfway through building 100 units and uh, building regulations shift or um, market circumstances change and it, that it requires a material change to the form of the dwellings there isn't really any other way of doing it other than a, a new planning permission mm. um, you couldn't really do it by reserve matters approval could arguably do it by section 73 revision um, but it's not that uncommon to to make a, few, a new application and drop in on the consent and it may be that um, you're at the end of the scheme and you just simply want to replace the residue, but it may be that there are individual components that you want to change. And in that context, Pilkington, the whole principles that we've worked under for a number of years is perfectly sound. But when it comes to multi-phase schemes or multi-unit schemes, where you're affecting change by um, drop-in application, then it creates some, some real problems. Mm. Um, and to give you an example of that, if you're involved in uh, a large residential scheme, it's not uncommon for the um, the district centre where the shops are and where the health provision is and where maybe affordable housing above in flats or whatever, um, for that part of the development to be um, negotiated by a house builder who's concerned with all the housing that goes around it, but they're less concerned about the detail and the content of, of that component. And they'll often dispose of that component to a third party that um, specialise in delivery of that element of the development. And it might be a retailer, for example, that's used to dealing with that component that's part of a larger scheme. They'll receive, let's say it's an outline planning permission, look at that element, and say that from a commercial perspective it doesn't work for them and um, but they don't want to apply for the whole redevelopment of the whole site and they'll do a drop-in application just on their part now at the point they make a drop-in application they've made a decision that they don't want to vary the wider scheme because there'll be shifts in square footage there may be changes to otherwise to the wider outline description of development so they can't make the adjustments within the scope of the existing consent. They can only do it by the drop-in application. Well, in those circumstances, what they're seeking to do is quite clearly material. So it's at odds with the Pilkington principle as it relates to that part. And at the point that they make the drop-in application um, and secure consent and then implement it, they will in effect uh, on implementation uh, certainly put at risk and probably in all likelihood cause the underlying consent to no longer be valid on these principles. So there's at large and um, in response to this four responses that you've got to, you've got to grapple with in understanding how you operate within a consent. So uh... As we've said at the outset, the actual factual background to this case of a, such a large scheme in a, in a national park uh, being sort of subject to successive planning permissions over, over decades uh, is on the unusual side. But, but you've set out uh, how the, the, the case does have uh, implications for, for more common multi-unit schemes. So it, the decision is of quite wide significance, isn't it? Oh, quite definitely. Um... And I, I think what's particularly interesting about 
the aspects of the case um, and why it's such a <laughs> it's such a dangerous place to go to from a from a developer's perspective. Mm. If you approach it from a purely legal perspective, you could say, well, this is you know this is this is fascinating because basically there has been a principle established um, some 48, 49 years ago that has run through the system and has provided for those engaged with the, de the development industry, whether they're developers or local authorities, with a mechanism for um, incremental adjustment and change on, on schemes that's been quite convenient for all. You don't have to revisit the principle of the whole scheme development. Mm. You can just take a component part and change it to suit your needs, and that might be suiting the local authorities' needs as well, um, to provide for adaptation and change over a long period of time. You know, bear in mind, you know, and the world of planning applications has changed as well over the course of that uh, uh, 45, 50 year period. You've gone from schemes of 1967, 400 units, that was a pretty big scheme then, mm. And to the world where we're now making planning applications for five, 10,000 unit proposals at the most extreme. Um, but like a 5,000 unit scheme um, is uh, not an abstract concept. A 5,000 unit scheme is actually pretty commonplace because that will mm. support a secondary school, support two primary schools, a district centre, health facilities. That's a kind of classic sustainable urban extension. And yet a 5,000 unit scheme will take you from consent through to completion, the best part of 20 years to deliver. Mm. And it's beyond imagination that a 20 year life cycle for a planning permission won't need to be adapted in some way. And that can it can just simply be adapted by incremental section 73s and 96 cha 96A changes. There's always going to be something mm. that of substance that requires a substantive change. So in that context, um, and it's not just housing, it can be storage and distribution, it can be mm -hmm. um, regenerate, urban regeneration schemes over a long period of time. Many, many forms of development are directly impacted by this because mm -hmm. it has become custom and practice to approach schemes in that way for all the reasons I've just identified. So it has very wide implications. Mm -hmm. And finally, so how will advice to developers and local authorities change as a result of the decision in Hillside? The practical implications of of this is that uh, I think you've got to look at um, your scheme in 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 four potential ways. Firstly, you've got to look at the change you're look, you're seeking to to undertake and establish is it non-material. Is it just a matter of mere incompatibility, as the Supreme Court said? And if it is, and if you can isolate it in that way, then then you're fine to deal with a drop in application. But you have to bear in mind that merely incompatible non-material in most cases um, would be something that you could either do by Section 96A or 70, Section 73 anyway. And why would you create the the, the tension of the drop-in application in those circumstances. Now, there's an argument that outline schemes, very pure, clean, broad brush outline schemes might still give you that flexibility. But some of the difficulty with that is that most large outline schemes have a very 
and technical and detailed description of development. They often have quite comprehensive and detailed master plans with parameter plans. And you, you've got to measure against the tension with those things to determine material, non-material. And I think there's some hard yards in that. Mm -hmm. So that's the first issue. The second is, can you do as the Supreme Court says and make an application to cut out the offending element and put another element in? Now, they don't go into a great deal of detail as to how that's done, but I rather suggest it's a new planning permission for the whole site. Um, and in a practitioner sense, we're now contemplating whether we can do that by uh, Section 73 in combination with 96A, because you've got to basically cut the cut the space and alter potentially the description of development to then put a new planning permission to sit within it. Mm -hmm. So there's some real practical problems with that in the Section 73, 96A combination, but also by virtue of going and getting another planning permission, because if you go and get another planning permission, You've got to then put it in the uh, in, in through the lens of the new policy context, which might include for biodiversity net gain, for um, starter homes, and a range mm. of things which weren't in play six months ago, or whatever the next six months is going to provide to um, to make life uh, complicated and interesting for us. Your third option is you look at your scheme and you say, well, I'm quite happy to just deal with this as the last phase of development. So I've built everything out under the existing scheme, and I'm happy to now turn the page and turn to the new planning permission and, you know, for want of a better term, abandon the earlier consent. Um, so that option's available to you, and um, the confirmation of the SAGE judgments by the Supreme Court uh, assists in reaffirming that proposition. And then your fourth and last option is that you've had the foresight to know that you're going to make changes, and you've pre-packed into the planning permission, probably best by condition, uh, something that acknowledges that um, an element of the scheme may change by future planning permission and that in granting consent that was rec recognised. Now, my view on that is that that's probably got to be quite component focused. If you go back mm -hmm. to my district centre change, that there's Planning, you know, this development should be built out in accordance with the planning permission, save for the district centre that may be the subject of uh, a further planning application, uh, and and then the you know, justification reasoning for the um, for the condition might expressly reference dropping applications. Um, so those are your four alternatives mm -hmm. when you're looking at, at this proposition, and as to how that then impacts on the advice to developers and local authorities. Um, well, I think you would start with those four propositions. Yeah. And then from there, um, you would um, uh, focus pretty heavily on, on the, the tools and mechanisms that you would interplay on new planning permissions going forward um, as, as a means to, to overcome this issue. One suggestion which I've made to a developer client um, in the course of last week is that when you've got, if you go back to my 5,000 unit scheme, if you know that you're going to have to make changes to it um, and you're uncertain about what those changes are, you might quite logically split the application, say the mm -hmm. 5,000 application, into 5,000 unit applications um, because 
you can then sandwich them together, deal with them as a single proposition, have a single master plan, possibly even have a single 106 agreement uh, and a single set of conditions. But you know that the component elements can then be changed without taking away from 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 the other change one, but not change four in the process. Um, so there's there's some practical issues that need to be grappled with as well. Um, and um, uh, you know the thought process that stem from there is uh, is to um, uh, keep a you know a careful eye on on other changes and and differences of approach and obviously further case law there will be further case law mm -hmm. on the issue to make sure that we're uh, we're establishing a set path and 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 process to deal with these issues. What's it, what's interesting about this case, yes, is that. It, it, it had disaster written all over it to begin with. You know, you've got 1967 yeah. planning got successive changes. There's no way the Supreme Court <laughs> were ever going to support it. Mm. Um, and of course, you're then taking a 50-year-old consent, running it through the mill of the Supreme Court, inevitably going to focus on the statutory code. Mm. And all of that iterative changes that have been made to the principle, which is basically the development industry flexing mm. and everybody flexing it to try and make it work in a modern development mm. industry, have now seen it just shrink back down again. Uh. And that's and that's what's happened here. You mm. know, it's it's mm. this kind of expansion and pushing the boundaries with the court trying to be accommodating. Um, and then the Supreme Court just shrinks it back mm. into this very vice-like grip of the legislation. And and the judgment says, you know, uh, there could be more, it acknowledges the infrastructure bills, mm. um, you know, levelling up bills, sorry, mm -hmm. and the changes that are coming there, that it, there's almost an acknowledgement that there needs to be more flexibility. But ultimately suggesting, well, you know, that's just the tough luck of the development industry. Mm. And you, you just got to suck it up and work your way through it. And there's mm. a distinction between what's lawful and legally interesting and then the the, yeah. the hard practicality of what, how you operate in the development industry. And uh, mm. so I think a bit of legislative change is almost inevitable as well, yeah. because there just isn't the there isn't just the oxygen in the system to accommodate the changes that we've made in the past. And that, and, and, and that is needed mm. and because it's too rigid a system at the moment.
Okay, well, thank you uh, very much, Stuart, for joining me to explain the Supreme Court's decision in Hillside Parks uh, versus Snowdonia National Park Authority, and most importantly, uh, to outline its important implications. Um, you at home have been listening to On the Case from EG.